This is Chapter 10, Part 2 of The War on Waste Paradox, read by Len Bertain. Gus said, this is really chicken. I don't want to measure something when I know the answer is always going to be no. Doesn't this get people mad? Yes, it does, Dr. Elby said. And you know what? People hate to see lots of no's in the chart. And you know what happens? Buck chimed in. I know what I would do. I'd fix this son of a bitch. That's what I'd do. This is just like that company you showed us that had 14 days in a row of no's. I can understand this. I don't like to lose. And this will tell me that I was losing. And you know what, Buck? That's what everyone else does. No one wants to leave these problems glaring at him or her. So they organize their teams to fix them. Why don't you set up yes-no charts for the items that we discussed, and I'll be by this afternoon to look at them. It's easy. Don't make it hard. Gus raised his hand and said, you know, Dr. Elby, we've spent a lot of time talking about teams, and we've broken up the class into teams to analyze waste and stuff. I don't have any idea outside of the crew I work with which team I'm on. Thank you very much, Tony. That's exactly what we're about to talk about next, teams. I don't know what team you're supposed to be on either. You're the ones who are going to be doing the work. Ask yourselves, what work is this team doing? Remember, when I talked about a business being no different than a baseball team and that there were teams within team, you've had a couple of weeks to see the problems in this company and to think about solutions. One of the first problems you're going to have to confront is who's on a specific team. Some of you will be on just one team and some of you will be on several. I know from experience generally how the teams are going to form, but I'm not going to assign you a team. My job is to be the facilitator. I'm not here to assign jobs. I'm here to make you stretch to find your own solutions. I will tell you now that some of the teams you form will not be in existence in a couple of months, at least not in their original form. Some of you will naturally be team players and some of you won't. The ones who are hesitant to participate in the team process are going to have a real problem here. The thing about change is that you're always taking a chance when you try something new. Here you're not penalized for failure. You're encouraged to try again. Remember, no blame. After class was over, we went to the shop floor and discussed teams. We broke up into small groups, mostly along the lines of what we did in the plant. The CNC people were together, the quality people together, and the setup crew and the rest. In my group, there was Billy and Tony, the two lead men from the Acme milling machines, myself and a couple of other mill operators. A guy named Glenn, who worked on another kind of milling machine, an XS2040, had nobody to team up with, so we invited him to join our group. We all decided that Billy's cell would be one team and that Tony would have another, but we would also be a team together. We talked it over among ourselves and decided to approach Gus about having a person from the setup crew be part of both teams. Billy went over and talked to Gus. Gus said it was all right with him if somebody would volunteer. Frank was getting some grief from Gus about the boring bar incident, so he was happy to come join our group. Anything to get away from Gus. We decided to try a completely new setup. We had a new industrial pump that had just come out of research and development, and we were about to put it into production. It made sense that we start fresh with the new product and to see how this team stuff would really affect the overall manufacturing process rather than try to make existing processes work and change them around. 
We were pretty excited about this idea, and Tony asked if we'd stay after work for a while to kick it around. We all agreed that we would stay to go over the project. I called Sandy at lunch and told her that I would be a little late getting home for dinner. She said that it was okay, but nevertheless, she was concerned that I was working late. It was hard to explain, but it was different than in earlier times. In those cases, it was just work. In this case, it was working with others to improve our business. That was different. Billy and I punched out at the end of the day and went over to meet with the rest of the group in the classroom. Tony came in with a couple of six-packs of soda. Ever since one of the companies in town was sued over serving beer on the premises to an employee who was later in a serious car accident, none of the companies allowed any drinking on their premises. Mr. Grimes actually hated to have that rule, but he had no choice. Tony had the plans of the new pump tucked under his arm, and he tacked them on a portable easel. He stepped back from the easel, popped open a can of soda, and said, Boy, what a mess this is. He was right. The piece that we had to make was going to be milled out of a solid piece of aluminum. It was an integral part of a control system that was going to be a central component of a computer-controlled heating and air conditioning system. It wasn't really square, but then again, it wasn't round either. It had a semicircular distribution turret cut into one end that housed five or six small inlet valves. All in all, it was a complicated process to take this from a hunk of metal to a finished assembly. We all had chairs arranged in a semicircle in front of the easel. Tony sat down and looked at the drawing. Does anyone have any clue how we're going to make this? Billy went up to the easel and started measuring the drawing to see how much material needed to be taken out of the block just to shape it to the outside dimension. Jim walked by the classroom and came in. What's all this? He said, I thought you were gone by now. Billy explained what we were doing. Then he asked, Jim, how many of these are we going to have to build? These things are complicated and they're going to be more difficult to machine. Just to get the rough cut to size is going to take forever. Jim replied, from what I gather, this is going to be a very big item for us. Several large air conditioning manufacturers have already expressed interest in the pump and its control system. So I think in the next couple of years, it's going to account for a large portion of our business. It depends, of course, on whether or not we can manufacture it competitively. His statement put things in perspective. This was an important item not only for the company, but for all of our futures as well. The workers from the both Acme cells were in the meeting, as well as Frank, the setup guy, and Glenn, one of our XS2040 operators. We kicked it around for a while, but we were wondering how we were going to remove all the material. Glenn finally said, look, the Acme 1000 is a fine little machine. Let me take a run of cutting it with my machine. I don't have the tool capacity of your machine. I'll get parts roughed out on my XS using the big cutters and hog out a lot of the material in one pass. You guys say that it will take over three minutes to do the first cut for this body. An XS machine can do it in probably 40 seconds or less, maybe even 30. If I cut the bodies just a little oversized, then you can finish them up on your machine. What he said sounded like a good solution on the face of it, but it didn't really work. The excesses and the Acmes were in totally separate cells in different areas of the company. There were different programmers assigned to each of the machines, and we just didn't see how we could connect the two. We spent a while trying to figure out if it was possible 
to follow up on Glenn's suggestion. Then I looked up at the clock and saw that it was 6.30. I jumped up and explained, holy cow, I got to get out of here. I told my wife that I'd be home for dinner, and that was half an hour ago. As I ran for the door, the meeting started to break up. As soon as I arrived home, Kathy, my little girl, ran up to me. Daddy, Daddy, where were you? Mommy said you would be here for dinner. We waited and waited, but you never came. We had to eat by ourselves, she said. Sandy walked into the living room. She she had just put Mickey to bed. She said, Kathy, go get ready for bed. After you've brushed your teeth, I'll come in and read you a story. Kathy protested, but she hadn't been able to see me, and that it wasn't fair that she had to go to bed so soon. Her mom said, none of that. You go get ready and we'll be there in a few minutes. I was sitting on the couch when Sandy came and stood over me. She rested her hand on my arms on the couch and with her other hand wagged a figure in my face. I'd better not find any lipstick on your collar. By the way, your dinner's in the oven. When you're finished, would you come in for a minute? Kathy got a little upset tonight because she isn't used to you not being here for dinner. I went into the kitchen and leaned against the counter. I was pretty tired. Buddy came in the back door. I gave him a big hug and we went off to his room to do some homework and work on a project for his class. I finished my dinner and put the plate in with the rest of the dirty dishes. As I closed the refrigerator door, Sandy walked in and said, Don't drink out of the milk carton. Kathy and Buddy have seen you do it. Now they're starting to do it. After the scolding, I put the milk away. As Sandy started on the dishes, I went in to say goodnight to my little girl. When I got back to the kitchen, I picked up a towel and dried the dishes. Sandy asked, What's going on at the plant? You've never been late getting home before. Is everything all right? We spent a long time talking in the kitchen as we cleaned up. I told her about going to class and about how things were changing at work. I said it's exciting, the same time it's scary. If this doesn't work out, there's a good possibility that quality will close down as well. Sandy replied, I know you're a smart guy. If anything can figure things out, it's you. Your dad says that you're one of the best machinists he's ever known. I believe him. It sounds like the people you work with are pretty smart too. I think all of this will work out okay. We sat at the kitchen table and I told her about the hassles with manufacturing of this new product line. I told her about Glenn's solution, how much fun it was to participate in this kind of work. It had been Good to hear Glenn give some input. The only problem with Blend Solution was the waste that it created in moving the product from one operating area to another. How could we get good production out of two different cells with different machines without spending all of our time moving whip around the shop? Why can't you just move the excess machine over next to yours? Sandy asked. I explained that they use different programs and programmers, and that this was not just one job. She replied, But honey... If this isn't going to account for so much of the company's income, shouldn't you try to build it in the most efficient way? My God, she sounded like Dr. Elby. She went on, even if that excess thing sits idle every once in a while, wouldn't it be cheaper than moving all those parts around? I mean, how much could that machine be worth? When I told her $300,000, she let out a low whistle and said, okay, I'll shut up now. It was late when we finally got to bed and I laid awake with Sandy's comments running through my head. I thought, why couldn't we move one of the XSs over to our cell? That's the end of chapter 10.
These are chapter 10 insights. No one owns the market on ideas. This last sequence, with our hero getting interesting and valuable input from someone who doesn't know anything about his work, namely his wife, this is very real. It comes from one of my most exciting moments as a consultant. I was in a class and a couple of machinists were arguing about the best way to do something. They were sitting on a project team with the company receptionist. After a few minutes of their bantering back and forth, she blurted out, Why don't you turn up the feeds and speeds? After all, you are machining aluminum, and the part needs to be produced at a low cost. I didn't hear the guys mention anything about the required surface finish. I happened to be at the table when this happened, and the look on the faces of the two machinists was priceless. It turns out that the receptionist had grown up in a family of five boys. Their family had a machine shop, and she learned how to operate machine shop equipment at an early age. But she wanted to raise a family, and she had. She was now in her mid-40s and took the job in an environment that she knew. From that point forward, her life at the company changed. She moved into operations and became an instant success. My message is this. Listen to anyone who has an idea. It just might surprise you. In my view, tribal knowledge applies to situations like this all the time. In this case, the tribal knowledge was contained in the past experiences of the receptionist. It was her unique skill set and her past experiences that define the receptionist's untapped tribal knowledge. The story of Sully the Plater is again one of those real situations that crop up at one of our clients. In fact, it was the inability of the truck to leave on time that created the first yes-no chart. The owner's son couldn't get up on time to inspect the parts going to the Plater. The employees knew the problem and who was guilty, but I didn't. So when we posted the yes-no chart and the president asked for an explanation, there was never a red X on the chart again. That's the end of chapter 10. Look forward to reading to you in chapter 11. Thank you very much.